The opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk do not reflect that of WVU Vast Tallahassee. From the highest point of Florida State's campus and the hottest room in Seminole Sports, this is Tomahawk Talk. Wherever you may be and however you may be listening, we are streaming live on wvfs.fsu.edu and are also on air locally on 89.7 FM here in Tallahassee, Florida. If you'd like to call into the show, feel free to dial us up at 850-644-3871. And as always, if you miss this show or any other future shows, you can always go back and listen to us on the Tomahawk Talk podcast, available anywhere you get your podcast at. This is your host, Gabe Tisness, and welcome back to another episode it is great to be here. Um, hope everyone tuning in is having a wonderful day. It's been warming up here in Tallahassee quite a bit. It's beautiful to kind of get outside in the morning and you know enjoy the cool breeze and then let it warm up a little bit with the sunshine in the sunshine state. Um, but tonight we have a couple interesting guests from Duval hopping on to talk about many things, including Jaguars football, because why not, <laughs> in the middle of March. Um, but Joining me, as always, is my awesome co-host, William Haynes. William, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Gabe. Had a really interesting weekend. Went down to Jacksonville with uh, Jackson Bakich, who was on the show last week. Kylie uh, Brennan, who we have on the show tonight. And we went for the the famed annual Guns and Hoses hockey game where the local policemen and firefighters face off for Jacksonville supremacy. And uh, it was just a really cool showing. You know, amateur hockey is, is something that's really cool to see. I've done some... Uh, work with FSU hockey in the past um, you know the, the old adage of playing for the love of the game and the fierce competition there was some pretty cool fights breaking out you know those uh, no love lost so to speak but uh, that was that was a really fun time and a unique experience for sure was there a bit of trash talk and uh, high stakes it was it really did have that kind of big game feel well we have Jackson uh, here helping us with Twitter so Jackson how was that it was a great weekend overall great like you said great amateur hockey really enjoyed it um, a great arena there in Jacksonville, uh, Vice Star Center Arena, I think. Anyway, great, great venue. Uh, felt like a major league venue, and uh, it's right there next to the Jumbo Shrimp Facility. Uh, but like you said, the amateur hockey was something, something to be seen. I hadn't seen hockey in a long, long time up close and personal. So, uh, great experience down there. Sadly, the uh, the Guns won in a shootout. As funny as it is, but. Uh, we had a great time, and Kylie was a great host down there in Jacksonville. Yeah, and speaking of Kylie, we have her as one of our two panelists tonight. Kylie, how was that experience for you, and just in general, how was your weekend? Honestly, my weekend was awesome. It's always great when you get to bring, you know, a little piece of college home with you to uh, your hometown. Um, I promised my brother that I would shout him out tonight. He is, in <laughs> fact, on the Hoses team, so... Mm. Just great to see my friends from school enjoying the game and getting into it as much as I did. Um, it is an annual event and it raises money for charity and uh, yeah, there's just there's that camaraderie there that's absolutely amazing. Uh, we had to rush home on Sunday though to make it to possibly the more prestigious event. Um, V89 participated in a kickball event and uh, we did in fact make it to the elite eight i would like to just drop that in, in the highest of leagues in the i am oh oh no it, it wasn't it was even i am this was a chi omega sponsored oh. tournament and there were about 48 paying teams enlisted we were competing for a thousand dollars there were the stakes were pretty high pretty high that's that's interesting that's wonderful i mean anytime you go out representing v89 like that i, I i'm glad when you come back with news like that 
But joining us in the show as well is Ethan, who's our other resident from Jacksonville. How was your weekend? Was you, were you in Jacksonville as well, Ethan? Uh, no, I was actually here in Tally. Um, one of my buddies who is actually in the Navy came by for his spring break, so it was good seeing him for the first time since July. You know, it's good to see the boys back and um, having a good time, so absolutely. Yeah, and welcome, welcome, Ethan, for your first show. It's, it's awesome to have new faces always. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's interesting that we have such a Jacksonville-packed, uh, I don't know what to call it, a segment, if you will. <laughs> if you guys want to discuss a little bit about what Jacksonville is looking like in, in terms of football these days, I mean, with Urban Meyer gone, it seems like brighter days are ahead, right? Yeah, that's uh, Ethan and I were kind of discussing pre-show, uh, talking about what is to expect out of ETN and just all the new signees that we had. It's been kind of crazy in Jacksonville lately, and I feel like we've kind of been on the back burner with all the other major moves that are happening in NFL free agency. So, Ethan, do you kind of want to kick that off? I mean, yeah, I'm not really sure how you can say the days can get any darker. I mean, leaving the Urban Meyer area in Jacksonville is well behind in the eyes of the fans, and... um. What's gone on so far in free agency, I think, is much excited and um, needed in Jacksonville, I think, with the addition of Christian Kirk and Zay Jones on the receiving core, and um, we stacked up on the O-line with Brandon Sheriff, the five-time All-Pro from Washington, and then um, adding the uh, NFL's leader tackler from Atlanta on uh, LB, replacing Miles Jack, the line-time veteran. So I'm liking where it's going, and it's definitely um, something to look forward to going into the draft in April. Can we get a little prediction for early prediction for where Jackson will be landing in the in the postseason maybe um <laughs> honestly like I, I kind of bet the house last uh season mm-hmm. you know I thought that with first pick Trevor Lawrence uh, I just I really just wanted to be optimistic for once and think that we were just going to do just great and amazing things and um you know maybe maybe we'll be able to watch some postseason football and experience what that's like I don't know do you know what that's like? I think the postseason may be a year or two away, but I'm calling a solid six, seven wins. You know, well, we have a tough schedule as we are playing the AFC West this year. We're also playing the NFC East. So I think it'll be exciting to see what we can do um, at home to protect the bank and then as well across the pond in London. So maybe give us six, seven wins this year, but I think we'll be back in uh, the playoffs in maybe 2023-24. We shall see. There's a lot. To discuss in the terms of NFL these days because, well, there's always something to talk about with the NFL, isn't that right, <laughs> uh, But before we get on with the show, as always, shout out to Scott in the production booth. He just came in, helped us out, making us sound our best selves. Um, but yeah, shall we? We shall discuss. Not NFL football, but college football because spring football is here for our Florida State. And while that might not be the most exciting news to some, there is certainly stuff to talk about because... It's Norvell season two up ahead, and I think with starters, we got to talk about the locker rooms, right, William? I mean, that, that's the most exciting thing, I, I think, so far in the last month or so, isn't it? Yeah, I think with with NIL, the kind of arms race of who has the best facility, I, I know the, the joke of Clemson having the, the chocolate slide, and, and it's all like who has the kind of fun features in the locker room. That is, I think, becoming a little bit of the past as players can go out and you know do advertisements and make money of, of their own, but... With that still being said, it, it does still matter to have top-of-the-line facilities, and there's no question. I know we've all seen that new locker room. It is top-of-the-top-of-the-line. So um, you look at the energy in spring practice right now. You, you hear some of the, the veterans that, that have come back to Tallahassee for Pro Day that, that's taking place tomorrow. 
they're all speaking complimentary about the coaching staff, the direction of the program, and those locker rooms is just another thing. Um, th- this is a little bit of a strange comparison, but I know the Chicago Cubs, they got a brand new locker room. They won the World Series, broke a you know, 100-plus year curse that very season getting the new locker room. So maybe Florida State could share some similar success. And not only that, but Doak got a $20 million renovation. I don't know if we ever got the chance to talk about that. So there's there's a lot that uh, FSC football is doing these days outside of the field. So maybe it'll impact the field, the field play at some point. Um, but speaking of off-the-field issues, they're losing Jarvis Brownlee, their, one of their starting corners for the past year, which to some that might not be the biggest of issues, might be a blessing in disguise. Uh, there's certainly a lot of talent in the DB side of things for Florida State. So I'm really curious to see how this maybe an addition by subtraction. So, um, yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of it yet. We still have a lot to see. Um, but it's one of the, the marquee si- or exits so far for FSU football in the last month or so. Ethan, what do you think about um, that addition by subtraction possibility? Do you think that there's somebody out there that may be benefiting a lot from more playing time in the upcoming year? Absolutely. I had the chance to talk to uh, Zaria Thomas, freshman cornerback, earlier this semester. And um, to be quite frankly, what I've seen and heard about him in spring practice is nothing but good. I think that with him and Sam McCall coming in, one of those two will be the next person to um, add to Florida State's DBU legacy. So, Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure. I, I, I <laughs> There's a lot of talent, but... This might be a situation where the team reverts back to youth is depleting their chances of winning. Um, hopefully with Norvell Season 2, you get a lot more experience on that the coaching side of things. But, William, how do you, how do you feel about that with, with youth coming back into play, uh, losing that experience in Jarvis, or, or do you think that he was just never really cut out for the chase? Uh, I, I would go a little bit of both. Brownlee st- uh, played in all 12 or- – Played in all 12 games, started 11 of those 12. Um, I think he'll be remembered in the public eye and the fan base for that that 57-yard touchdown he allowed to Jacksonville State. That was the first ever loss to an FCS program in Florida State history. That was his appointing. It's certainly an up-and-down year, I thought. Um, really a tenacious uh, defender in the run game. You don't really see starting cornerbacks on the outside make those kind of hard hits in the running game. I think that's probably the number one thing that you're losing, but the Miami game was one that stood out to me. There was a couple of other games throughout the year as well where uh, the opponent was going into that game knowing that they wanted to target Jarvis Brownlee early and often and to the tune of a lot of success. And um, towards the end of the year, he started losing out on some playing time. There was some young bucks. Amarian Cooper was one, uh, Jerry and Jones, Kevin Knowles, um, and you mentioned in McCall some of these new new uh, freshmen and, and such as well. So it's a really packed defensive back room. And if, you, if you've got a guy in Brownlee who you don't really feel is, is a part of that future, I think it's probably best to cut ties, not just for, for the Florida State program, but for him as well, that he can move on uh, and kind of get a fresh start somewhere else. Yeah, Omarion Cooper is exactly who I was thinking of. He had a standout game against Miami. Uh, he had an interception against them. And in general, I, every time I saw him play, especially during the second half of the season, it seemed like he, he was a player that was eager to get more snaps, uh, just gaining a lot more confidence and experience. So hopefully going into year two, he can you know stand out and, and become a, a perennial player for, for the Seminoles. Um, but yeah, William, you mentioned the Pro Day coming up. There's a lot of players that are not maybe not a lot of players, but there's some important players like uh, Josh, Joshua Corbin who are leaving 
um, and they're going to try to you know make their name now in the NFL. Obviously, Jermaine Johnson is the number one player that FSU is bringing to the draft. Um, but there's other players who are trying to you know make a make a name for themselves in, in the pro day, and that's the one day where they have all the the spotlight, the the, the shine to to be able to do that. Um, is there anyone who the fans need to know about that hasn't really been talked about? Yeah, absolutely. So the pro day will be going on in, here in Tallahassee tomorrow. Uh, the front line, the front line names. Of course, there's going to be a lot of players participating. Not all of them, of course, have have legitimate chances of getting drafted. There's some that that may get kind of a backdoor chance at, at a training camp invite or something of that nature. But the, you know, the main names that you're familiar with, Jermaine Johnson will be there. Uh, listening to his interview a couple of hours ago that was released, um, as all those players, as I said, are kind of coming back in town for that. Um, he's he's not going to be doing a ton. He's, he said he's not doing any on-field drills. He said he might be doing the bench press, uh, but but there to support his teammates as well. He talked a lot about that in his interview, that, you know, the importance to him to being a good teammate. And I think, um, you know, n- now that this is probably his, one of his last times we'll see him in Tallahassee, the kind of impact that he had on this program. And I think he's one of those pivotal names that kind of started the shift back in the right direction. So he'll be in attendance. I think Jay Sean Corbin um, has the most to do. He was one of the only players invited to the NFL Combine, but he did not participate in any of the measurements. I think he might have done height and weight, and he did on-field drills, but the 40-yard dash, the 20-yard split, um, the bench press, all those things, uh, he did not participate in that, so he will be doing that uh, here in Tallahassee tomorrow. Kier Thomas um, did not get invited to the Senior Bowl, did not get invited to the Combine, was a a really effective uh, defensive lineman for Florida State this or this past season so i think this pro day is a really big opportunity for him because he has not really gotten a look um with any nfl you know front office executives and then another one that that stood out to me as well mackenzie milton he's going to be participating both in florida state's pro day but also ucf's pro day um he really mentioned a passion to take his game to the next level um, not not to be overly critical, he did start the season for the Seminoles, but there were times where you would see him kind of scramble to the outside. He had open green grass in front of him, and then he would slide to the ground. It seemed like even he wasn't exactly sure if he could trust that knee, uh, that, that brutal surgery that and the recovery that he underwent, but he, he's serious about playing at the next level. It certainly is not a guy that I think is going to be on anyone's draft board, but certainly a guy that has a ton of experience, a name that everyone knows, um, could be a, a, a training a training camp arm, uh, you know, someone that the media could really attach to and could be a story in July and August in training camp. Um, so, so those are the names really that stand out to me that will be participating. And, you know, Drew Brees was giving like a 5% chance of ever playing back in the NFL. So you never know with these, these guys, you know, a lot of crazy things happen in sports. So we wish the best of luck to McKenzie. But it certainly seems like nobody really saw this coming, especially at the end of the season where maybe at the start of the season you're saying, hey, if he does – decent or even pretty good for for FSU but he didn't he he was struggling a lot with injuries and we never really saw him stand out uh, like he did in US in UCF before his injury so it's quite the curious case uh, of McKenzie trying to make a name for himself once again but we wish him the best of luck nonetheless Kylie as we kind of wrap up the FSU football side of things what do you you know I hate asking this question so much but what are your expectations for you know, Norvell season two, uh, there's a lot to to go into that. There's a lot of expectations, but at the end of the day, you have to look at this program for what it is and, and take it with a grain of salt and not, you know, try to make it FSU from 2013 or even before that in one night. So what are your thoughts? Well, um, just real quick, I just wanted to end off your note on Mackenzie Miller yeah, real quick. Yeah, go for it. Um, 
I just, I couldn't believe that all season long it felt like any time Travis was kind of screwing up our, at all, uh, it seemed that the entire fan base was chanting, we want Milton, we want Milton, and really I think we can say that we did see Milton perform well at the end of the Notre Dame game right there, but truly I think that was just causation of that being a very small sample size, and mm. then we kind of assumed that he was going to do well for Florida State the rest of the year, and then didn't really see that. But as far as expectations go, um, I mentioned to you guys earlier that I have a friend that kind of works near um, the practice field, and that she just hears Coach Norvell pumping up the players and getting everyone psyched up, and how positive he is, and even just talking to players that are in my classes sitting next to me, everyone seems to just love the guy. And I truly think that that could be a turning point and a force that really unites the team and gets a culture change going. And we finally have, you know, a consistent coach. And yeah, I just, I really hope that we see this transform into a situation of the players are passionate, the players want to play for him, they want to do well. Uh, we see a winning record possibly and not sort of a situation that goes south where we see too much of a players coach type situation. Yeah and speaking of a winning record there's another team in Tallahassee that does have a winning record right now and that is the FSU baseball team. They're currently ranked number five. They are once again in the headlines after losing 11-2 against Duke but they're still winning the series so that's just me making news out of nothing but nonetheless the FSU baseball team they are one of the better teams right now in college baseball, and William is here to break it down for us. Yeah, so overall, it's a successful week. You go 3-1. and one, You were scheduled to play two games against UCF. You only get one in against uh, or because of rain, but you win that one. And you take two of three from Duke, one of the teams that are in the bottom of the ACC, but you still take a weekend series victory when you can get it. That 3-1 week brings them up to number five in the country. Uh, as you look ahead, there's a ton of ranked teams in the ACC. Virginia at 4, Louisville at 11, Notre Dame at 16, UNC at 18, and Georgia Tech at 22. So a ton of really fierce competition down the line, and that's kind of what we've been talking about early on in this baseball season, especially a non-conference portion of play. You're just getting built up for those more competitive games. Parker Messick, the Friday starter, it seems like he just keeps getting better and better gets his third ACC Pitcher of the Week honor of his career, the second of this 2022 season. He went seven innings, I believe shut out, career-high 14 strikeouts. This is a guy that's averaging basically two strikeouts per inning, which is basically unfathomable, especially against the competition that Florida State has been playing. Uh, really the low note of the week, they did kind of get blown out by Duke on Sunday. Uh, Ross Dunn struggled. He couldn't even get out of the second inning. Um, and by the time he had left the game, the FSU was already down 4 nothing. The next pitcher that came in had a bases loaded walk to make it 5 to nothing. So after that, uh, that, that was pretty much the game. Uh, and then as you look ahead, this is probably the, the most competitive week that Florida State has had on their schedule to date. Tomorrow in Jacksonville, Florida State will play UF. The Gators are ranked number 14 in the country, and they have a weekend series here in Tallahassee against Notre Dame, who is 16 in the country. So you've got all four games this week against top 16 teams. I, I know I say this every week, but we're going to know a lot more about this team <laughs> a week from now on Monday night. We certainly will. Ethan, is there uh, – I know you, you won a couple of games this past week. Did anything else stand out to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think 
on the game on Tuesday against UCF. That was by far one of Florida State's most complete performances of the season with a dominant pitching performance, an absolute mashing performance at the plate with this final score attended to. I mean, everything started to come together for the Knowles. Carson Montgomery absolutely delivered, and you've been able to see his growth of what was expected. Um, the lineup is getting into its groove, and I think playing against a team like Florida this week, you know, a lot of the guys have played against each other in high school or at least familiar with each other. It's um, the Gators, obviously. It's going to be a, a dogfight, and I think coming back into tally with the Irish coming to the town, like, I think the luck's running out. I think the Knowles are going to come out here and have another dominant weekend, so I'm excited to see what we're going to bring. <laughs> I like the sound of that, even. Uh, we shall see. But for now, we have also something pretty exciting to talk about in March Madness, because it is still March. We kind of forget about that sometimes in this show, but there's still a lot more basketball to be played. And the Sleep 8 just happened this past <laughs> weekend, so <laughs> there were no, not many surprises in that department. Um, but I think we're, we're set for a really exciting Final Four. Um, we have UNC and Duke, of course. That's the premier matchup. And then Kansas-Villanova uh, in the other side of the bracket. And just a quick check. Ethan, Kylie, did y'all make a bracket? I'm, I'm really curious to see. I did. I, uh, how's, I, that, how's I, that going? I made a handful. I was like, at one point, I was doing pretty well. I had the Dukies winning in a couple of them. So, you know, those are doing fine. I think I have like a max of like 900, 1200 points, maybe something around there. I have no idea what that means because I didn't make a bracket. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'll have the tournament challenge. But what I is mean, that in NBA terms? I'm just kidding. I, I, I can't answer that one for you. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I have the Dukies winning the Final Four in my bracket, but we'll see what happens. Against who? I had them against the Zags, mm. but that's hey, not going to happen. At least got anymore. one of them. Exactly. Kylie, what about you? Well, I, I have to say I am a part of the group that did not make brackets, oh. and my reasoning for that is it's called March Madness. How am I going to predict madness? I don't know. Do I want to predict predict madness? No, That'd no, be I cool don't. If you I want to. I want to be. I want to be surprised with the madness. You know. There you go. Well, speaking of madness, I think it's pretty mad that UNC Duke is happening, especially with Coach K having his last dance. Uh, so, that's definitely the game I'm going to be tuning in to watch. Um, William, do you? Do you foresee some, some good luck for Coach K in this matchup? Or? I think he'll probably advance. Before I do that, one thing I wanted to just mention as a Florida State tie, and I think Florida State, one of the only schools to have three-plus wins against teams that were in the Elite Eight. So just kind of an insane season the way things worked out. They had that win against Duke at home where you rushed the floor. I think they, they took a game against the Tar Heels as well. So that is frustrating. I think the way Duke is playing, I don't know if I've seen a team in the tournament in recent memory – that is just as hungry as they are. I think they've kind of gotten all the jitters and, and some of that inexperience out of the way. The way they, they, they're they just dominating teams, it is kind of insane. Um, you know, they're playing Texas Tech, and they've got these these big men who are so athletic that can jump so high with rebounds, you know, getting getting the ball in the net. Um, I just I can't see this team being stopped by anyone. UNC has been really successful as well. They're, they're a team that can fly around, and it's really fast up and down the court finally a team that could outrun st peter's i'm not i wasn't sure we would see that in the tournament um so, so i'd probably see say the blue devils uh will be advancing to the final championship game of the tournament i was forgetting about a little shout out to st peter's man you can only dream sometimes but man it was a good dream Kylie? i just had to say um think about the economic impact of everyone that's working at the Barstool Sports Warehouse making Doug Eddard merch. 
It's all gone. St. Peter's is gone. What will they do? How will they recover? <laughs> How will the economy recover? I'm not sure. But, Ethan, what is what is your... What's your beat on, on, on Duke? What, why do you have them going all the way? Um. Well, one, Coach K does not lose twice to the same team in four weeks. That's just not something that legendary coaches do. And it's not, that's not something that will happen. UNC is hot. I was on the Tar Heel train. I um, love what they did this season, but I think it comes to an end here in NOLA. I think Duke will win. I think they'll get to the championship, obviously, and that's where I really think you get into it. Someone, a team they haven't played, um, a lot of young players, what can they do? I don't know. Would I love to see the storybook ending happen? Sure. You know, will it happen? Honestly, probably. I think Coach K is that guy, and I uh, think that w- when you have a career like his, it's only meant to go out with a championship. I I love the sound of that. I am all for fairy tale endings, for ending it in high note, walking away in the sunshine. I, I have no idea if it's going to happen, but that, that's what I would like for it to happen. Okay. Real quick, I just have to ask, if Duke, if, if Coach K takes it all, are we as Florida State Seminole students allowed to claim kind of like a UCF football chain? Are we allowed to claim that we are somewhat national champions as well? No. By to be, to be the best, you got to beat the best. And, that's, and that's under that I'm circumstance, saying. we would have beat the best. Under that circumstance, I, I kind of think we are. And that's what I'm going to hold on to. I don't know. I'm like, I saw a uh, little Instagram post today that one of the most annoying fan bases in the country was UCF. And I think that 2017 national championship claim is much to that. And I don't want to be a part of that list. So, <laughs> no. Well, that's, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Well, as we kind of ran out the, <laughs> the March Madness talk, I think Kansas is being slept on, but that's just me. 100%. Um, they're, they're the only number one seed left in the bracket, and they're always, you know, in contention. Sometimes they falter, but I think this is my pick. It's going to be Kansas. I would, I would probably end up taking Kansas a- as well t- to beat Villanova. You made a good point to mention that Kansas is the only number one seed left in the Final Four. Really, the story of this tournament has been kind of the the blue bloods and and the, the the teams that are heavily favored going down. Obviously, Kentucky losing to St. Peter's. We saw number one seed Baylor go down fairly early. Um, you know, Purdue ended up having an exit. Tennessee. Um, a lot of those teams. Um, you know, Iowa, Wisconsin as well, losing to even Auburn that lost to you know double digit seeds. A lot of these teams that were kind of supposed to define the tournament. So you're thinking, all right, well, all the kind of the the big dogs are out. No, look at this Final Four. These are these are the bluest of blue bloods in college basketball. You have Duke, you have UNC, you have Kentucky uh, or, or Kansas. I, I mean to say, um, Villanova. I believe three championships since 2016. So there is no lack of star power remaining in this Final Four. Uh, I will say for for Kansas, maybe a little more battle tested. They had a really tough back and forth game with Providence. Who I know a lot of people like going into the tournament. They beat a Miami team by 26 points. That had given a lot of teams a lot of trouble. And then you look at the Villanova side, um, as far as seeding goes, the number one win they have is a number seven seed over Ohio State. They had a, they beat 11 seed Michigan as well. So I'd probably take Kansas and their experience in this tournament over the Wildcats. Villanova will be without Justin Moore and one of their star guards. So that's definitely something to keep their eye on. But Kylie, what's your pick? Um, Honestly, before the torn Achilles, I think it was for Justin Moore, I might have said Villanova maybe, but I've got to go with you guys on that and say Kansas. Yeah, go Kansas. 
Stephen. Rock, Chalk, Jay, Hawk. From Lawrence Nola, it's happening. There you go. Yeah, you heard it there from Ethan. <laughs> All right, I think that's going to do it for the first half of the show. Jack Oliaro is up next with Seminole Segment. You've been listening to WVS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. Like he said, Jack Oliaro is the name. Arm Circles is the game. And this is the weekly seminal segment, highlighting and relaying all of the latest in Florida State athletics. But we begin down south in the MIA, where the Florida State softball team looked to remain perfect in non-conference play over the Florida International Panthers. FSU came into Saturday with only two losses on the year to ACC foes, but after dominating the Troy Trojans 12 to nothing, they were coming into Miami looking to wreak havoc, and havoc they wreaked in the fourth inning with a two-run Kaylee Munch dinger, dinger to put the Knolls up 3 nothing then enter Area 51 slash Michaela Edenfield. She lived up to her nickname and blasted one out of sight and out of mind for a three-run goner to give the Florida, give Florida State the lead for good. They finished that game up 7-0, with Emma Wilson being the winning pitcher, only giving up two hits in, in four innings of work. A little break and back to business as Janai Kerr and Area 51 knocked in RBI singles, while Mac Leonard hit an RBI double. The Seminoles made up six runs whilst only giving up one, the only one on the doubleheader. The team will continue to stay on the road with a doubleheader in Jacksonville on Wednesday before heading up to Charlottesville for a conference weekend series with the Cavaliers. Switching bats for clubs, we switch to golf, where the Florida State men's team are in the midst of their first of two days in Palm City at the Valspar Collegiate Invitational. In the first round, the team hit 5-under as Danish sophomore Frederick Schietrup headlined the side with a score of 7-under. Nine of his 18 holes were shot for birdies, while Cole Anderson kept cool and scored 3-under without a bogey. The second round is currently in action, but as it stands, the side is 8-over in the current standings, with Daniel Bradbury and Michael Sakane the only members not shooting over the final 18. They will continue tomorrow for the final day before taking a well-deserved rest from competition, and their next play will be on April 11th in West Point, Mississippi. But that's going to do it for this week's edition of Seminole Segment. Gabe and William, run it! And run it we shall. Welcome back to the second half of Tomahawk Talk. This is your host, Gabe Tisness, with William Haynes, Ethan, and Kylie. We have a lot more to talk about in the world of sports, starting with the NFL, because, of course, the NFL is making news. We didn't get to break down the Tyreek Hill trade from last week. Um, star receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs was moved in a package deal to Miami, South Beach, taking his talents there. And Kansas City is, you know, getting a lot back. But I think in particular, they're just getting themselves out of a very interesting cap situation. They're now fourth in the, in the NFL when it comes to most cap space, so they might be losing one of their best weapons in the NFL by far, but they're setting themselves up for a pretty interesting future with Patrick Mahomes and the rest of the crew. They're, they're signed a couple interesting players with Juju Smith-Schuster, and who else did I miss? They had Ronald Jones, the running back from, from Tampa Bay, and then they added another receiver in Marquez uh, Valdez. Oh, yeah, MVS. Packer, the former Packer. Um, but yeah, that's definitely the main news from the NFL. They also have the annual owners meeting, which we'll get into that as well. There's a lot to talk about there. But William, I mean, the Tyreek Hill trade, it's certainly going to affect a lot of fantasy teams, I think. Um, but how does that affect the Miami team and, and the, like, the Kansas City team? Yeah, I think it's a really, it'll go down, I think, as being a good move for both sides. Andy Reid speaking at the owners meetings today. And South Florida was saying that it was purely a cap move. You know, there was no. There's been rumors this offseason. There's there's been some disconnect between the players and coaching staff on the offensive side, 
so I think Andy Reid kind of kind of downplaying that when you know one of your greatest offensive weapons is skipping town to Miami. But look at the haul that, that Kansas City ends up getting in this draft alone. They get a first, a second, and a fourth, and next year they get a fourth and a sixth kicked in as well. Also, you the added benefit of not having to pay the kind of contract that Miami gave him. The Dolphins had to pay him a lion's share of four years, $120 million. With $72 million fully guaranteed, he's going to be making $30 million a year, which is the highest paid non-quarterback player in the NFL. That's significant. I mean, that 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 alters how you were able to build your roster, um, especially when the time comes when you have a quarterback potentially to pay that kind of money. That's always the goal in the NFL, to have a quarterback that you have no choice but to pay that much money. Um, and as a Bucks fan, something I can speak personally on, something I have experience with, in 2017, the Bucks were kind of going back and forth. They never really would get close to 500 at the end of the season, but they had the, the big quarterback, the number one pick in Jameis Winston. And so they bring in Deshaun Jackson, a player that, that is known to be electric, ma- making making plays a lot like Tyreek Hill, can take the top off of the defense with his speed, and was projected to be kind of a game changer in that offense. And flat out, Jameis Winston couldn't hit the deep ball. It didn't matter if Deshaun Jackson was open or not. He couldn't get the ball to him. So with this fit in particular with Tua Tungavailoa, uh, we just haven't seen his ability to really do that. And, and I I worry that that could be a potential Winston-Deshaun Jackson situation down in Miami. The only difference is the Dolphins are paying Tyreek Hill a whole heck of a lot more money. The Tua hate is back, y'all. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's got to be it. That's got to be where, where everything comes down to because if Tua can't hit the deep ball, this trade will not really make much sense. Not to say that Tyreek can't make an effect on the field. He can play in special teams, he can play in the bubble screen, even on a slant, he can take it all the way. But at the same time, if you want to get the most for what you're paying and what you're giving up in the draft capital, you have to be able to hit the deep throw. And more than anything, this is a test for Tua. If he can't succeed with Tyreek and Jalen Waddle and Mike Gesicki, then he's not your guy. It's as flat as simple as that. It kind of reminds me of when you know Dak got Amari Cooper and you know he also had Michael Gallup in the crew. So we're gonna find out about Tua soon enough. Um, I was wondering, Ethan, you were kind of talking a little bit about it before the show about your thoughts on this trade. Um, speaking of the, gra- the draft capital, like is this gonna be worth it looking back? Because I, I was starting to think about Ricky Williams and you know trades like that where some team just gives an, an absurd amount of draft capital, but sometimes it is worth it. Will this time maybe be it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think looking from the Chiefs side of perspective, I mean, you still have a solid receiving core in Juju, Vado, Scantling, Kelsey, Pringle, Hardman, a backfield of Edwards Hilaire, Rojo. Um, that's not a bad offense. And you have Patrick Mahomes obviously behind center. That is nothing to be nervous of at all. I think on the Dolphins side of the ball, I think it will create opportunities for two in the sense that if Hill is on the field, he will have more than one set of eyes on him. So I think that opens up opportunities for young receiver and Waddle. And um, you have Mostert in the backfield. You have Gusecki at tight end, like you mentioned. I think it will kind of distract that part and maybe be the part that two is missing on offense. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's got to be a positive mood, even in the short term, maybe not in the long term. But at some point, I think the Dolphins will will benefit from it. Um, We'll we'll see. We can only see from now. But looking forward to it as well, how do you think this, this, this trade affects both teams, Kylie? Do you think that, kind of like William was saying, it's a win-win for both teams, or, or is there a team that you know didn't really get much from their trade? I don't necessarily know if it's um, 
a win-win. I definitely think it's something that we're going to have to see play out because as you guys were saying, uh, Tyreek Hill, that's a big name. That's something to get excited about. Uh, and just in our little group chat, I think all of our dolphin resident Dolphin fans were getting very excited and said that um, this was one of the greatest days being a Dolphins fan in a while. Um, but one of the things that I have to ask is, you know, Tua through. 10 interceptions this past season so it's kind of like getting him a big wide receiver as a weapon it's one of those things where it's going to be like okay is this going to help correct those errors or is this going to be something we see again where the quarterback here just doesn't really work out so it's it might be an expensive mistake we just we don't we don't know you're gonna have to see it play out yeah a couple of you guys had thrown that out that i thought was really interesting Jalen Waddle set set the rookie record in the NFL for for receptions, yeah. and that was him being far and away really the number one option on that offense. There is a reality in which you know Tyree Kill, as you said, Ethan has drawn multiple sets of eyes on every play, and even if he can't get him the ball, you've got other guys that are going to be getting one on one single coverage, which is all the rage in the NFL these days. We've seen the Chiefs, as we've been talking about him with Kelsey, can Gasecki now be that guy having Tyree Kill on his roster, and then also their new head coach. And Mike McDaniel, look at the kind of stuff that he was in charge of on offense in San Francisco, Gabe. You mentioned the bubble screens and, and uh, the jet sweeps and those those kind of things. Tyreek Hill is one of the, the most elusive players in the, in the NFL, and that's something the Dolphins have been sorely, sorely needing, just a guy that we can get the ball in his hands and he can take it to the promised land. So I am really interested to see how they are going to utilize him. They kind of invented a position for Debo Samuel. Will they do something similar for Tyreek Hill? I'm excited to see. Is Brandon Marshall the last great Dolphins wide receiver, or am I totally missing somebody? Uh, a little trivia for you. I think he would have to be. I mean, Devontae Parker never amounted to, <laughs> to a whole lot. That's the only name that I'm, I'm, I mean. Jarvis he, Landry? Jarvis Landry. Devontae won a lot of people fantasy leagues, so I'll give him that. Um, but I think I think Brandon Marshall would be the right answer for that. Um, yeah, I think moving on into the annual owners meeting, there's a lot to talk about, but I think in particular we have two storylines here. With the 49ers GM saying that Jimmy G is more than likely going to stay in San Francisco. It doesn't seem like anybody else is interested in him to the point where the San Francisco 49ers are willing to depart from him. Um, I believe he has one more year in his contract, if I'm not mistaken. So it's not going to be for a long time, even if he stays. But it certainly seemed at the start of the offseason that, you know, Trey Lance era was beginning in San Francisco. But now it doesn't seem like it. Or at least it'll be... Uh, a competition, we'll call it that for now. Um, but, I mean, Jimmy G staying another year, is that something 49ers fans should be looking at positively? Yeah, his his quote officially at the owner's meeting was saying he does not foresee Jimmy Garoppolo being released, although he did kind of open the door for a trade. He said, this is a guy that's definitely going to be start being a starting quarterback in the NFL, he said, whether it's here or elsewhere. I, I think also, <laughs> whether 49ers fans have gripes with him or not, I'm not sure. He took him to the NFC Championship last year. You know, he, his teammates love him. That's one of the things he's most known for. He, you know, a great leader of men. Uh, that's something you talk about as a quarterback in the NFL. He took him to a Super Bowl appearance a couple of years ago as well. The track record is there. He's one of the winningest active quarterbacks. Our wins a quarterback stat, Absolutely. Oh, the no. San Francisco 49ers are proof positive that, that, that wins are a quarterback stat because oh. without a guy like Jimmy G at the helm, I'm not sure they're able to – to get those things done. Do they beat Green Bay and Lambeau? I'm not sure. 
Um, they have a guy in Trey Lance who I think Kyle Shanahan is more than excited to work with. I think he kind of fits more so that offensive strategy of what he wants to do. But if you can go into a season with a guy of his track record in Garoppolo, I don't know why you wouldn't want to do that and take the pressure off the kid in Lance. He's got all the time in the world. I'm all for buying time for the kid, but at the same time, I think the kid can dethrone the guy already. Ethan? I don't know. I just t- was thinking, do you ask the question of opening up the season with Garoppolo, seeing what he can do, and going from there? I mean, I think if he comes on the season, he performs well, and they still want to go with Trey Lance in the future, do they get more value with Garoppolo in 12 months after he has a good season if they can't get anything for him now? His value cannot go up from here. It, it, it just can't. Well, the problem is the, the quarterback carousel has already kind of run its course. I think if you're going to trade him, it might be an in-season thing where, where someone's where a big-time team's quarterback goes down and they need somebody. I mean, all these quarterbacks have changed hands, and, and both Baker Mayfield and Jimmy Garoppolo are kind of looking at themselves without a spot right now. For a specific reason, because they're just not good enough to start for a championship contender. I mean, that's the fact of the matter. Maybe for a playoff team, but you're you're just putting a Band-Aid on, you know, a deep wound. I I don't really see. Ever since the Super Bowl, I remember when I came in the show as a panelist and I said, Jimmy G's never going to get them to the promised land. And, you know, he was close to getting them back, but, you know, I I think you have to start over. I think this is just trying to, you know, prove that you're not wrong about him, which at this point is going to cost you more money and, and more pain. But other news, the overtime is once again in the headlines because it's never been fixed so far in the NFL history. Fans are never content. They're always disappointed when some team inevitably wins the coin toss and goes all the all the way and wins the playoff game, leaving a lot of people disappointed because their team didn't get a chance. So Kylie, is there some overtime rule proposal that you're most excited about? Because there's two, I believe, that I'm pretty interested in. Well, so, um, this season, especially with so many games coming down to the wire and going into overtime, I remember I was sitting on a plane. Uh, I don't, I don't, I talk to people when I'm on planes. I, I, I think that that's fun. That's you know, normal. Meeting a new person. Some people put headphones in. I don't know. But anyways, I digress. Um, and I was just adamantly against the NFL overtime rules this year, and the person next to me on the plane said that, you know, if you're a Super Bowl caliber team, if you're a postseason team, your defense should be able to prove that because defense wins championships. Mm. And that kind of put it into perspective for me. And I was thinking, wow, okay, maybe I'm wrong for once. I don't know. But um, yeah, what we were talking about earlier about um, if you go for a two-point conversion instead of the field goal or extra point, um, that being the game winner, um, mm-hmm. I think that that's definitely an interesting take on things and never seen anything like that before. Yeah, the Tennessee Titans, their proposal is after converting the, the initial touchdown, after winning the coin toss, you have to go for the two-pointer in order to win the game straight up. If not, the other team gets a chance, assuming you make the PAT. If you make the PAT, if you don't make the PAT, I think the other team still gets a chance, right, William? Yeah. Yeah. So, either way, if you don't for for the two pointer, the other team will receive the ball. If you go for the PAT, then you know you have to score seven at least to keep the game alive. So, that's an interesting proposal. I've never heard about it. I think I'm a big fan of it. But then there's the Eagles and the Colts. They have the typical college proposal: make it both teams get the ball, let them settle out. Yeah, I think 
because college is just possession for possession on the yeah. twenty yard line. I think Bill Belichick has been the main guy in proponent of keeping the overtime period attached to a clock to keep it um, kind of the same game. There's been uh, Mike Tom- Mike Tomlin, who's on the NFL competition committee, has come out as well and said, you know, look when the, when the games when regulation is over in a tie and we're starting an overtime period. I don't want to have to explain to my guys that we're playing, you know, a, a whole different type of game with a whole new set of rules. So I do agree with kind of the, the Belichick and Tomlin school of thought is let's just keep this as close to NFL football as possible. Let's keep it um, tied to a clock. So I think the Eagles and Colts are kind of staying along those lines, but mandating that each team get a possession. You know, if you if, if you win the coin toss as Kansas City did in that divisional game and you go down uh, and strike for a touchdown, the Buffalo Bills and Josh Allen gets a chance to respond. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. When I was on the Monday after that game, kind of along the same lines as what Kylie was saying, the Buffalo Bills had the number one ranked defense in the NFL that season. If you want to go to the AFC Championship, get a stop. You got to do something. S- simply put, I mean, that that to me is the reality of it. But I understand the other side as well. You want, you want Josh Allen to get the ball in overtime of that game. I understand it. So I, I personally, I like the Titans' proposal. So if you go down and you get a touchdown, you can still end the game because if you're a defense, you give up a touchdown and a two-point conversion, you don't deserve to win. You don't deserve to get the ball back. That's it. If you want to get the ball back, get a stop. So I, I think that, that rule extends that out a little bit but still keeps keeps the spirit of the game, which I like. This is one of the most annoying topics, in my opinion, when it comes to the NFL because, one, it's been a topic ever since I was a fan like 15 years ago. But secondly, because I see both sides, and they're really good sides. They both want to make the game as better as it can and as best as it can <laughs> but i think think about the the team that scores a touchdown to tie the game at the end of the game and regular in the in, in regular time should that team go for two points right there in that moment because that's kind of what the titans are saying it's like you should be able to determine a football game in two yards which i can see it being really entertaining because we've seen plenty of games go down to the wire goal line offense versus goal line defense and you know settle it out but at the same time is that good enough to be able to settle it compared to like going back and forth between possession and possession I think it's interesting when, when you bring that up it is similar towards when the NFL made the rule to move the extra point back and make it a 33 yard field goal and the purpose of that was we wanted more differentiation of score we wanted that play after the touchdown to be more entertaining and so they incentivized the two point conversion after the touchdown I feel like this is, is kind of the same way don't just make it an automatic thing where you know you don't have to worry about the decision after the touchdown. Make it a decision for these coaches. Make it a topic, a, a talking point. You know during and after the game. You know if you're a team like the Tennessee Titans and you've got Derrick Henry in your backfield, <laughs> I know Mike Vrabel and I know he thinks he can get those two yards to win a game. And then on the other side, you know a Kansas City Chiefs team that has some of the most creative play design in the NFL that feel like they can get those two yards. But there's going to be other teams that are more conservative. Maybe the Patriots in a game. They feel like they want to kick the extra point and continue playing football and allow their defense to win it. So anytime you can add more strategy into NFL football, I'm all for that. I think that, you know, they say that games are win by inches, and Mm. I think that that's true. However, I think at the end of the day, I'm still a fan of a normal 10-minute quarter in halftime or at an overtime, and then just giving both teams the ball, simply just like that it keeps the game simple they don't have to explain a lot of different rules and at the end of the day i think it still keeps everyone on their toes and it keeps the game exciting it's a never-ending debate i don't know if we're ever going to find out which is the best way but 
something that we will find out is where Joe Buck and Troy Eggman will be calling games. They will be calling them on ESPN. <laughs> and Fox is just left with nothing, pretty much. Isn't that right, William? Well, I don't know about that. It's not necessarily necessarily fair to Kevin Burkhardt, a guy who's not even 50 years old yet, and he's going to be calling two of the next three Super Bowls. So, so that's pretty cool for what he's done in his career, really a fast riser. And I think Joe Davis, a guy that's called playoff baseball on Fox as well as the guy that can take over uh, Joe Buck's job as the, the voice of the World Series. So Fox not really making the flashy move promoting from within, uh, but I still think they've got a couple of guys um, that can do the job really well. And and then you look on the other side, ESPN, they are officially making Monday Jeez. Night Football a thing again. Big primetime games. They're going to definitely be getting better games from the NFL when the schedule finally does come out. You know, if you make that investment, the NFL is going to kind of give you some games in return. So I think that that's a really cool thing as well. And another thing that I'm really excited about as well, the pairing of Al Michaels, maybe one of the best uh, TV play-by-play voices of all time, uh, partnered with one of the, one of the rising stars in this broadcast in, in, uh, in the broadcast world and Kirk Herbstreit. We're not seeing a whole lot of NFL work from him, but I think that's a really interesting pairing between uh, two really big names for Amazon Prime, which is going to be the the sole host of Thursday Night Football moving forward. You know, Thursday Night Football has probably been receiving the most hate when it comes to the NFL uh, primetime games by far. But at the same time, Monday Night Football hasn't really been clicking for me sometimes. Sometimes it's delivered some really good ones, but at the same time, I think Troy Aikman and Joe Buck is just going to make it what it should be. It should be the last game of the, of the week, you know, just top-notch broadcasting commentator um but yeah you brought up al michaels i mean thursday night football it might just be enjoyable for the sake of hearing that man because he is an all-timer um but kind of switching gears now into the car scene we got another f1 race this past weekend leaving saudi arabia with max verstappen winning it in prime fashion red bull is once again kind of near the top as they should be unlike their first race of the season. Um, some other highlights. Ferrari remained P3 for a second race in a row. So that's pretty exciting for Ferrari fans. Um, and for Mercedes fans, they're starting to wonder, is this the year where Mercedes just maybe drops out? I, I don't know. We'll see. But I think the, the, the one good news that everyone can celebrate, of course, is Kevin Magnussen going P9 once again. He is just a joy to watch. Haas is just on fire. They're, I don't know what, what they must be celebrating. Yeah. But, you know, Verstappen winning is definitely the, the, the big thing. He, he's back. He's never really left. He just had an incident last time. So, yeah. Uh, well, uh, I want to go before we acknowledge the fact that Mercedes have finally missed for the first time since the beginning of the Turbo Hybrid era eight years ago. We kind of want to set the scene here for uh, this past weekend um, at the uh, Grand Prix of Saudi Arabia. Uh, it started with a bang, and as much as I'd like to make that hyperbole, no, it was literal. Uh, there was a, um, so if, if you don't know, Saudi Arabia and its neighboring country, Yemen, have been in a um, war for a very long time now. And um, Yemen, uh, Kuthai rebels in, the, in Yemen have been, um, have, or on Thursday, I believe, launched a missile, launched a missile strike. Um, at a Saudi Arabian refinery a few miles away from the track. It's big news because you could see it on the broadcast during FP1. That's, that's the first practice of the weekend. Um, and uh, there was a lot of talk of whether or not 
we want to we um, or Formula One wanted to remain in Saudi Arabia that weekend with um, the threat of a potential bombing during um, racing events. Uh, Jack. Yeah, it was kind of a it was a very unique circumstance. Um, obviously, you don't go around in places and expect to be bombed. Um, there was a bit of an issue because the uh, drivers um, the drivers were kind of in a, a stance into that they did not want to race. Uh, while the constructors or the uh, the team bosses were in the agreement of, hey, we've been told by the right officials, we've been told by the right people that it is safe to drive here. And that's a huge economic loss if they can't drive there. Um, that refinery in particular was Aramco, who was a title sponsor for Formula One, a title sponsor for that specific track, and a title sponsor for a couple of other of the Formula One teams. So it's a huge, uh, it would have been a huge economic loss if they had not gone through with the race. But obviously, uh, safety wasn't... Um, Maybe number one that day, but uh, nothing happened else that weekend, so we didn't thank thank, uh, for that. But besides that, um, a very, very interesting weekend on the track. Uh, We could start in uh, qualifying, where um, the big shunt, the big news, or the big video that everyone could see was uh, Mick Schumacher going into the wall on one of the turns and had a very, uh, very nasty crash. Um, Certainly dramatic. Yeah, he... Uh, uh, he was okay. He was he was all right. He was checked into the hospital for a little bit, and he is um, he is in good spirits and fine. But the car took a huge impact, similar to the likes of. Um, it was really testing the limits there. It was a really bad, uh, really bad shunt there, and uh, we're just thankful he's okay. He didn't race uh, in the race, but. Um, there, he, there's reasons for that. So um, for we we should go back and and say with the revision of the regulations this year. Um, one of the priorities for Formula One was obviously safety, and they made the chassis about 10 to 25 percent uh, more rigid. Just means that they're a lot stronger when taking impacts from the side. Just the way that uh, Nick Schumacher took his impact or his first initial impact before sliding a few hundred meters um, down the track. Now, what's uh, interesting to me is that uh, this incident was the most dramatic, but not isolated. In turn 12, I noticed had several problems during the weekend. Uh, where drivers would uh, attack the curbs um, of the corner too aggressively, basically um, going a little off track to where there's some bumps to uh, punish drivers who are going off track. And um, he wasn't able to manage his car because he was in full attack mode because he was in qualifying mode. Um, But uh, Alonso, Esteban Ocon all had issues on the same corner. They got away, but he didn't. And we saw it. Uh, one of the biggest reasons that um, Schumacher did not go back was not because of his health. He was fine for the race, medically cleared. But also, um, the team determined that it wasn't worth it trying to build another car in 12 hours before the race. And, you know, and potentially sacrificing a double points finish for the team in Australia, which is two weeks from now. And now we can finally get to the race, which is where things for me get super interesting. Yes. So in the race, um, you had uh, Sergio Perez on pole. Um, his first pole in his entire career, his long for, uh, Formula One career, and he, it was his first pole. He got away well, um, had uh, Charles Leclerc, Max Verstappen getting past Carlos Sainz on the straight, so you had uh, Ferrari, Red, Bu- uh, Red Bull Ferrari leading the pack, which is becoming a, the norm at the moment. Um, it was kind of smooth sailing for uh, Checo until a safety car where Nicholas Latifi had his second shunt of the weekend, ran, uh, hit the wall, caused a safety car, which really play with strategy and really uh kind of kind of ruined Checo's race he um he pit right before the safety car and when a safety car comes um you have an advantage and everyone usually pits during that time 
You yeah. don't lose a ton of time like on track if a safety car is coming out. Everybody's driving slower, so uh, gaps kind of disappear, and everybody it's it's what we call like a free pit, basically. Yep. Could, could you argue that that's what happened in the last race of last season? Not really. No, that was a that like the the huge controversy from last year was that all of a sudden the safety car kind of ended. Uh, it wasn't very clearly telegraphed to the teams. Um, and it was two laps before the end of the race. It was pretty clear that the FIA did not want to see that race end under yellow. Um, one of the I've, we've been over this before, but the um, in NASCAR there's this rule called green white checkered, which means that the the race has to end under one lap of green, one lap of white, indicating the final lap, and then you get the checkered flag, which is the end of the race. Um, in short, though, I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't pin it to that. Uh, different strategies kind of prevailed, so. Um, Kevin Magnuson and Lewis Hamilton, um, who qualified really low, uh, probably the biggest story coming out of qualifying, could not get the car right. Started out on mediums in qualifying. This is Lewis Hamilton, obviously. Um, barely scraped into Q3, or, or did not scrape into Q3 at all. Actually, no. He that that was the that was a big shock. So he uh, tries it out on mediums, doesn't work. Tries it out on softs. Still can't get the car out from, um, under him to to behave the way he wants to. They checked the car. It seemed that everything was fine going into Wednesday, but he only or f- sorry uh, Sunday, but he uh, only manages a P10. Now that's a huge accomplishment for anybody who isn't Lewis Hamilton, but we kind of expect more um, from him. Yeah, um, I think it was the first time, or at least I, I couldn't pull up the stat, but it's first time in a long time where he was in Q1 in qualifying. Without having a accident. Yeah, I believe that was what. Go ahead. It's a long time. They were saying the last time he wasn't he got he missed Q1 was 2017, and that's when he had an accident. So yeah. I couldn't find the stat for that. However, uh, in terms of the actual race itself, um, after the safety car, it was Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc going, going neck and neck, wheel to wheel. The last ten laps were, uh, it was like the last race. They were back to back and forth, trading trading leads and going back and forth. But Director end, of uh, Red Bull Racing, Helmut Marco, called it the best race in ten years, and I would honestly agree with him. The the, the one that only comes close to me is Bahrain 2014. That is legitimately the best race I've seen from start to finish in my entire life, and it always will be. Yep. Um, and Max Verstappen came out on top, yep. uh, getting Red Bull back in the points, which is huge for them. But um, they're still third in the championship, but Ferrari is 1-2 in the Drivers' Championship and number one in Constructors. Red Bull some catching up to do. It'll be exciting what happens in Australia in two weeks' time. Will some teams yep. develop? Will some, some teams fall back? We'll have to it's a nice bounce back real quick, last thing, uh, for McLaren uh, with Lando finishing in the points. Danny Rick still um, with an engine failure, so um, just didn't finish. Um, but he didn't look too comfortable in the car. He struggled a lot here at McLaren. He'll, he can figure it out occasionally. You know, Monza is all the example that you need. But um, he uh, still... He's always been like a slow starter um, in Formula One, and we'll just see him kind of develop and mature the car um, down the road. Yeah, the next race will be Sunday, April 10th at 1 a.m., it appears. So, uh, yeah, put your put your alarms on for that one, right, William? <laughs> no, but that's going to do, do it for tonight's show. Thank you all for, for tuning in and listening. For Sebastian, for Jack, coming in as substitutes for Scott in the booth, for William, for Kylie, and for Ethan, for myself. You've been listening to WFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.